Now is the time we bring you the virtual stage of our 11th Achieving Optimal Health Conference at Georgetown University. To experience this talk with all the videos, slides, and graphics, head over to the BBNR website where you can enjoy the entire day of archives of nine incredible speakers for just $29. Go to bbrconsulting.us and click on store. One more time, visit our store at bbrconsulting.us. Thanks for staying curious and for living your best life with us. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Stuart Lustig, and I am so excited to be with you all as part of the Achieving Optimal Health Conference. Today, we will talk about how to be less lonely and stressed and more resilient, research-based strategies for everyday life. Now, a good place to start is talking first of all about what stress is. And stress is really a cognitive construct. It's the difference between what reality is on the one hand and what we expect reality to be. And, and the greater that difference, uh, the greater our stress level. So to give you a simple example, if we are trying to get to a meeting by eight o'clock and we're running 10 minutes late and we're sitting at a red light and it's slow to change, that is stressful. If we're at that same red light, and we're running 30 minutes late, that red light is even more stressful because that's a bigger difference between getting to that eight o'clock meeting, which we are expecting and what's really going to happen. The other part of stress that's useful to understand from a cognitive construct is that a particular input may be stressful or it may not be, and it depends on the context. So the red light that I mentioned just a moment ago, that's stressful if you're in a hurry, but if you are not in a hurry and you're listening to some really good music on the radio or a really interesting talk show, that red light gives you the opportunity to enjoy what you're listening to for a little bit longer. So it's not at all stressful. Now, in COVID times with the pandemic and racial injustice around us and climate change disasters and political turmoil, it's easy to think of all stress as bad, and, and much of it may be counterproductive, but there is some stress that's good. So clearly stress related to things that you want to have in your life. So you're getting married, you're starting a new job that you're excited about, you are moving to another part of the world that you want to live in. These are all stressful things as well, but that's good stress. And if you look at this curve, what I'm showing you here is that you need a certain amount of stress in any case in order to perform. So on the x-axis there, horizontally at the bottom is arousal or motivation or stress. And on the right side is performance. And you have to have at least a little bit of motivation or stress in order to perform well. So stress can be a good thing depending on the amount, not too much, but not too little either. Now, all of us know that stress is a mental uh, construct, but it's also connected with our bodies. Mind and body are integrally connected. And we know that because when we are stressed, we experience it in our bodies. And it's good to know where each of you experience stress in your body. So for me, for example, when I'm stressed, I tend to notice it in my stomach, it starts to churn. But for other people, 
It may be headaches. It may be back pain or muscle soreness or stiffness or tingles, really any number of things. Uh, the important thing is to know where it is for you, because when you experience it somatically in your body, that's a sign that you need to step back and try to reduce your stress. Now, at the end of the presentation today, I'm going to share with you my four-part plan for stress. But I want to talk about something else right now as well that is connected to both body and mind, and that is loneliness. Loneliness is really on an upswing at this point, and even before the pandemic, there was a, a pandemic essentially of loneliness. And loneliness has both physical side effects. Uh, loneliness has been akin to smoking 15 cigarettes a day in terms of the life expectancy of people who are lonely. And there are also a lot of emotional uh, aspects of loneliness too. It's associated with depression and with anxiety, for example, with risk-taking behavior. So loneliness is a significant factor for all of us and particularly now that we are in the midst of this pandemic. It's really the difference between what we want to have in our life in terms of relationships with people or the quality of those relationships and what we actually have. So again, it's another cognitive construct, just like stress. Now we studied at Cigna loneliness a couple of times. We've done two major studies of loneliness back in 2018 and 2019. We surveyed over 20,000 people the first time across the country, over 8,000 people the next time. And what we found is that uh, a significant portion of the population is lonely. And I'll say over 50% actually the first time and over 60% the second time. So that's a significant number of people who are dealing with some amount of loneliness. Now, what was perhaps most surprising, but it was a very robust finding, was that loneliness is associated with age, but not in the direction that you would expect. So take a look at this. Here we see the numbers in the bars. Those are loneliness scores ranging from zero to 80. The higher the number, the more lonely you are. And what you see is that the younger you are, the more lonely you were. Now, this may fly in the face of everything that we think we know about being connected, being isolated. We tend to think of older people as more isolated and less technologically connected or savvy. Their friends and family members may be dying and so forth. But in fact, we saw something quite different. Uh, we saw that every generation was more lonely than the one that had come before. And that's a really striking finding. So I want to call that out. There were some other interesting associations too. Uh, take a look at this. This shows that although money can't buy you happiness, as they say, maybe it can buy you friends because the higher the degree of income, the less your loneliness was. So that's an important finding as well. Now, we also, in that second study of 8,000 people, we looked at workers. So this was a study that looked specifically at workers. And remember now that we spend a lot of time at work. That 90,000 number in the middle of the slide is the number of hours on average that we spend at work over the course of 45 years working a 40-hour week. And again, over 60% of people are lonely. Now, what do we know about lonely workers? Well, we know this. Uh, they tell us in the surveys that we asked them, and we correlated these with their loneliness scores, that uh, their work is of lower quality and that they are less careful when they're working. They also mentioned that they're three times less likely to be productive. 
So that's significant. And I think the most interesting finding related to the impact of loneliness on workers is that they're much more likely, twice as likely to think about leaving their jobs. And as we all know, churn or turnover is a very significant expense for any employer. So we really want to help people make connections at work, uh, reduce their stress, make connections. Now, we learned some other interesting things about loneliness in workers as well. We learned that, for example, how long someone had been in a company was relevant. The longer you were there in general, the less likely you were to be lonely. You had more connections. Uh, the environment mattered. And many of us in the pandemic have been telecommuting. Well, that is a risk for loneliness. Telecommuters, as you might expect, are less connected, certainly face-to-face -to, -face to other people. And that is a risk factor for loneliness. Which industry you work in uh, seems to matter as well. So, for example, it was protective to work for a nonprofit or to work for the government as opposed to the entertainment industry, which had the highest levels of loneliness. And finally, they say it's lonely at the top, and that's true according to our study, but it's also lonely at the bottom. The people who are at the lowest rungs of an organization may not be as well connected with each other or with folks elsewhere in the organization. So, Remember, when you're working in an organization, look out for the new people, look out for the people who are starting out at entry-level positions. Those are the loneliest. Now, let me tell you a bit about more about COVID at this point, because as you might expect, when the pandemic hit, after we did both of these studies, all of us were socially distancing, quarantining, sheltering in place, keeping six feet from one another. And, uh, and working remotely, many of us. Now, many people were still going to work and with a great deal of anxiety about doing so. But in fact, many people have been working from home. And so that is a significant factor to consider as well. Now, let me tell you what we did next. After moving from loneliness, we decided to study in the midst of this pandemic, resilience. Now, resilience is that ability to bounce back from challenges and particularly by navigating towards and using the resources that are available to you. And by the way, those resources are often other people. So that'll be a theme that we'll come back to. But remember, resilience is bouncing back from challenges. And we surveyed over 16,000 people in this country in uh, 2020, summer of last year uh, in 2020. And what we found is that using resilience research measures in collaboration with the Resilience Research Center up in Canada, we found that three out of five Americans, their resilience was at risk. That means they did not have optimal resilience scores. Some may have moderate scores, some may have low resilience, but scores that were at risk. Now, here's the fascinating thing about the age distribution. Look at this. In the numbers there, the percentages that you see, those are the percentages with optimal resilience. And here's what we see. The children, so we started with this study with kids ages five to 10, they were the most resilient. The greatest percentage of them had high resilience. And that suggests to us that kids are born with an inherent amount of resilience. But then as you move through later childhood and then uh, into adolescence and finally young adulthood, that's a particularly risky time. Resilience drops down from a 45% level for optimal resilience to 22%, and then it rebounds. It comes back as people are entering the workforce, making connections with other people, starting their own families and developing more skills in life. But again, just as with our loneliness research, what we found is that young adult population 
uh, remember those were the loneliest people in the study, they're also the least resilient as well. So there's really, uh, that is a particularly risky age group and one that we really wanna be thoughtful about. Now, more about kids. What we learned about kids is that screen time matters. And this was true in our loneliness study too, by the way. But if you were spending too much time in front of a screen, too much time on social media, as defined by five hours, you were less resilient. And by the way, that sounds like a lot, doesn't it? But if you factor in what we spend networking with other people, what we spend just passively watching things like movies or shows or videos, or even video that you look at for school, uh, you can get to five hours actually pretty fast in a 12, 14, 16 hour day. Kids who are less resilient also didn't feel like they belonged as much. They didn't feel like other kids wanted to be around them. So again, we come back to this concept of other people being critically important to resilience. Higher resilience was different. Those kids felt like they had more opportunities. Other kids did want to play with them, did want to connect with them. Now, let me show you some more data from our study. Let's switch gears and talk about workers. What you see here is a very robust finding. This is the relationship between the amount you're working and resilience. And the more you're working, the more likely you are, 37%, to have optimal resilience. And that drops off if you're working part-time or if you were furloughed or if you were laid off. Now, remember this study was done at one point in time. So it is a correlational study. It is not causation. So we cannot say that resilience causes you to be working more or vice versa. Um, but the two are associated and it certainly calls out that there still are a lot of people who are working who do not have optimal resilience, which means uh, there's a lot of work to do, certainly for employers uh, to think about that and for all of us who are in a, in a working environment. Here's some more interesting information about workers and resilience. We learned that those who felt like they were part of a community, that was helpful. 42% resilient versus 18%. In a study like this, that is a huge difference. So helping people feel like they're part of a community helping people feel included and like they can be their authentic selves. You don't have to hide who you are when you come to work. You can be yourself. Uh, that was also associated with a very significant increase in resilience. And finally, uh, and this is really a C-suite level consideration, I think, but people who came to work with a sense of purpose, that really mattered. And maybe that was the issue in our loneliness study too, for people who were less lonely if they were working for nonprofits or for the government. But if you believed that you were coming to work to share in a common good, something that was good for society, that seemed to be associated with greater resilience. So how we communicate to our workers about why they are there every day, why they are coming to work uh, is really important. Now, physical and emotional well-being also associated with well-being. So this is important too. We really need to think about how do we associate or how do we build rather our physical well-being? How do we keep ourselves emotionally healthy? And I'll talk a little bit more about that in the next few slides. But this is how we really maintain our resilience. So first of all, holistic health, mental well-being, physical well-being. A lot of this comes down, I think, to work-life balance, which in the old days used to be you punch a clock, you, come, you start at eight, you end at five, and that's when you're working. And then uh, for the rest of the day, you're offline and, and or you're not at work. Now, many people haven't bought into that and many people work at all hours, but they, they achieve the balance because if they need to disappear in the middle, middle of the day for something, that's okay. 
However it works for you is what's important. But the important thing is that you feel like you have time to get your work done, but also manage the rest of your life as well. So really focusing on that work-life balance will enable you to have time to do the things that you need to do to stay healthy, making sure you get plenty of sleep, more than you probably think you need, eating as healthfully as you can, avoiding processed foods and added sugars and uh, eating as much whole foods as you possibly can, and getting some physical activity, getting physical activity on a regular basis, even if it's simply walking, that's helpful to do. The other thing to think about is connectivity. Remember, resilience involves other people as resources to bounce back from challenges. And people at work are going to be part of your network. Think about how you make connections with other people. Take advantage of networking opportunities. Take advantage of employee resource groups if you have those at your workplace. Seek out people who are interested in the same things you are, but also people who think uh, differently from you do as well. Because remember this point that the inclusive and diverse workplace builds resilience. Why? Well, think about this. If you are exposed to other people who don't look like you, who don't think like you, and who have other ways of approaching and solving problems, that's going to help you too to solve problems and think about issues in new ways. So diversity is really your friend as you're trying to build resilience and make connections with other people. It's really helpful to have honest transparent uh, two-way communication with each other. And uh, by that, I mean, be yourself. Say who you are, say what you need. Don't just keep things superficial. And it doesn't have to be a complete total information download. But when you're talking to someone, let's say you're talking to someone on your team, whether it's your boss or your or your team member or your direct report, whatever the case is, uh, rather than just saying, how was your weekend? Um, or did you have a good weekend rather, which you know, everyone knows the answer to that is yes. Yes. How about how was your weekend? And then really take time to listen to how their weekend was and share something about your weekend. Share something positive that you were excited about and share something that you're working on, uh, something that maybe took a little bit of effort. It wasn't so positive. And people will see the real you and appreciate the real you. And almost always, if they possibly can, they will reciprocate. So I had a conversation, for example, the other day about how I'm uh, in the process of helping my parents move across country. It's a big deal. They're in their 80s. Uh, this is not a trivial move for them. And the person I was talking to shared something about her experience helping her father clear out his house after her mother had died and so forth. And so we connected in a way that we wouldn't have otherwise if I hadn't been willing to, uh, to take a risk and, and share something of myself. So have those conversations. And finally, be thoughtful about how you use technology. Technology in the time of this pandemic has really been helpful for bringing people together. It's been good to see each other's faces, particularly as we've been sheltering in place and, and socially distancing, and particularly for people who live alone and are not reclusive by nature. It's much harder for people like that to not feel lonely, essentially, to stay connected. So technology is good. And at the same time, just like with social media, uh, in the case of resilience or loneliness, we want to be thoughtful about how we're using it. And so think about whether or not a, a meeting really does need to be a video meeting. Video can be exhausting if you're sitting at your desk or on your chair hour after hour after hour. So think about whether a meeting really needs to be video. 
maybe you just tune in at the beginning so people can see you. They know you're dressed and, and, and ready and, and there, but then you turn your video off, which is what I like to do if I'm not presenting because then I can walk around with my headset on and I, I do my best, best thinking when I'm moving. And I also get my steps in that way and keep myself fit in that regard. So think about whether you really do need video. And if you do need video, please make a 60-minute meeting a 50-minute meeting. Make a 30-minute meeting 25 minutes so that people have time in between to uh, catch their breath, pour a cup of tea, run to the restroom, whatever it is they need to do. And also think too about whether you need the phone. Uh, sometimes a phone meeting makes sense, um, but maybe not if someone has dogs barking or kids running through the room. Maybe you can solve something on an email uh, or at some other time that's not a scheduled meeting time. So be judicious in your use of technology. Now, I promised earlier on as we were talking about stress and how it's a cognitive construct in the same way that loneliness is, that I would share with you my plan for stress. And it's a four-part plan. And this is it. Uh, and I do this every day. I, first of all, take a period of time that is yours and yours alone to do with as you want, something that will help you to unwind, to relax, to de-stress. So it could be first thing in the morning. It could be uh, during your lunch break. It could be in the evening after other people have gone to bed. But whenever it is, build that time in on a regular basis. Now, L of plan is location. And as the world is opening up now, it's a bit easier to have locations available to you. It might be a coffee shop or it might be a, uh, a park that you can go to. It might simply be a room in your home where you can sit in a comfortable chair and read a book, but where, whatever it is, it's gotta be accessible. So I've done this training, for example, for law students who are very hardworking. And one of them said, well, I go to Hawaii, that's where I relax. And that's true, you can relax in Hawaii or wherever your vacation destination is, but it needs to be something you can actively build in on a regular basis. And that's hard to do if it's a vacation destination. So something local, the location has to be local. Now, A is activity something you enjoy doing that you can do every day. For me, I'll go for walks frequently. For other people, it's reading a book, it's listening to music for a while, it may be cooking, it may be watching a film. Build it in every day. Uh, make sure you have enough time to do it. And bonus points if it's something physically active, because then you get a burst of serotonin, which is that feel-good neurotransmitter that's associated with well-being. And it goes up when you're exercising, particularly if you're outside. We know that being in nature is a good thing and breathing fresh air. And finally, most importantly, is N, and that's name. The name of someone who you can talk with to unwind, to de-stress. It could be a spouse, it could be a family member, uh, it could be a friend, therapist, uh, neighbor, coworker, whomever it is. Just be sure that number one, net positive. So you can help them de-stress, but they're helping you de-stress no matter what. You don't want to be more stressed after talking to them. And number two. It doesn't have to be the same person every day. You can have a community of people, which I recommend. So one day, maybe it's a partner. The, the next day, it's a friend and so forth. So how are we going to get through these times? We're going to keep our resilience up. We're going to recognize stress when it's happening. We're going to employ our stress plan. And I thank you all so much for tuning in. It's been such a pleasure to be with you today. Be well and stay safe. Hello, everyone. 
We are going on 20 years now in our journey with BBNR to bring holistic health to the mainstream. It has really all come from a desire to find ways to flatten out the bumps in the road of our lives and be grateful for when days go well. So much innovation and insight is coming out on health and wellness on a daily basis. It's sometimes hard to keep up. We are so grateful for the speakers who join us on this podcast and to all of the guests that come to our Georgetown conference and to those that join us at Gasparilla every year to share their wisdom. At the end of the day, we hope that we have made you curious enough to try some of these tips in your day-to-day life. We hope that you felt their impact on your life as well as the lives of the people that you love. Thank you for joining us on HealthGig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.